Ladies and gentlemen, I see some familiar faces. Uh, some of you have already uh, heard, uh, listened to me. Some, uh, I saw some of you during my uh, yesterday's presentation. So since I like jazz, I will try not to play the same composition twice. <laughs> but certain things will certainly be repeated. Some statistics will definitely be repeated. Uh, the uh, topic of my article um, uh, uh, sorry, the, the topic of, of my uh, presentation today is uh, the parliamentary elections of 1993. Sorry, I'm losing my mind. Uh, not 1993, 2003. You know, my Russian will always be much better than my English. <laughs> Excuse me for that. Uh, elections of December 2003, uh, elections to the Russian uh, State Duma, uh, which is the lower chamber of the Russian parliament. Uh, an equivalent of the House of Representatives in the United States. And the parliamentary elections that we will have, uh, presidential election that we will have here uh, um, uh, uh, in the United States in November uh, and in Russia in March. That's a, a very interesting year for both of our nations because when I'm in Russia, that's mainly what I see on, on Russian TV, parliamentary and then presidential campaign, and of course that's one of the most interesting things that I see on American TV uh, with uh, primaries. And when I was in Iowa, I actually attended as an observer, foreign observer, Iowa caucuses, which was very interesting indeed. Uh, that's important to know how certain things work in uh, a foreign country, but it's certainly uh, much more interesting to actually attend uh, and to see with your own eyes how it works. And to answer questions of my uh, friends in Iowa, how do you like our democracy and would you like to have the same kind of democracy in, in Russia? And of course, you cannot answer it in just two words. Everybody needs democracy. The question is that when they have a little bit different understandings of what this democracy means. Um, the most important thing that I want to tell you, you know, in the very beginning of my presentation regarding the parliamentary elections of 2003 in Russia is that they were described by uh, the Western Observers uh, Organization for Cooperation and Security in Europe and then it was repeated by uh, numerous American observers that the elections were free but not fair. My point is at least to some extent to explain why uh, foreign observers can consider Russian parliamentary elections of 2003 to be free. Nobody questions, uh, nobody asks any questions regarding whether they were not free or not. They were free. But why they were not fair? And in order to speak about that, and in order to give you a better picture of why some of the observers can consider Russian parliamentary elections to be not fair, or substantially fair, that's another quotation from one of um, uh, one of documents of the Organization for Cooperation and Security in Europe. Let me just give you uh, a few fa uh, facts about the elections themselves. Uh, we uh, were electing the lower chamber of the Russian Parliament. The number of deputies in the lower chamber of the Russian Parliament, which is also known as State Duma, is 450. Twelve national parties participated in the elections. That's quite a peculiar feature of the Russian legislation when you elect uh, the lower chamber of the Russian parliament, half of those deputies 
are elected in single mandate districts. So candidates run for a seat in their personal capacity, like Mr. X, Mrs. Y, uh, 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 Mr. Johnson, Mrs. Johnson. That's half of those seats, 225. The other half of those seats is distributed between the parties, depending on how good was were the results of the parties who participated, that participated in those elections. A tricky provision here is that if your party failed to get more than 5% of votes, then you cannot bring any deputy to the lower chamber of the Russian parliament. We have this 5% threshold. If your party is weak, if it gets uh, 4%, then your party cannot bring any members along the party lists, along the party lines. So out of those 12 national parties that participated in the uh, recent parliamentary elections in Russia, only four were able to clear that 5% threshold. The most important thing here, and the main reason why Western observers uh, characterized the Russian parliamentary election as not fair is because the most pro-Western, pro-liberal, pro-reformist, pro-American parties failed miserably. That's very interesting. You know, that's not the first time when we had the parliamentary elections. We had parliamentary elections. Uh, we have had parliamentary elections since 1990. First to the Russian Supreme Soviet, that was in the Soviet days. Then we had parliamentary elections after the uh, adoption of the new constitution in 1993, then 1995, 1999, finally 2003. And you can take a look at the results of those elections. You will see quite interesting direct linkage between how good were the results of those pro-Western, pro-American, pro-democratic, pro-reformist that's how they're called the American mass media parties. If the results were good, then a definition of those elections in American mass media or European mass media would be that they were fair. <laughs> if our best men in Russia and if our favorite parties in Russia failed, how can this kind of election can be fair if, if, our, if our people fail? The problem, of course, with the last elections was that uh, never before the pro-American, pro-Western, pro-liberal, and please, please, uh, uh, I want to, to, to be clear here. When I use all those terms, uh, those terms don't have much academic substance. Those are just, you know, favorite words that we use to describe somebody whom, whom we like. If we don't like somebody, we call him a fascist, regardless of his political views, just, well, as, as, as any kind of a substitute for a four-letter word or a substitute for he's the son of a bitch. You cannot say that somebody is the son of a bitch, but he can say that he's a fascist. Oh, again, nothing to do with, with reality. So the biggest problem with the last uh, parliamentary election was that uh, those two main pro-Western parties, the biggest recipients of American aid, they failed miserably. They were not able to bring uh, anybody to the State Duma along those party lists. So nobody among uh, 225 deputies who were elected along the party list. 
as far as single mandate districts are concerned. Well, you can say, but listen, maybe the parties were not popular, but the deputies, candidates who were running from those liberal uh, pro-American positions that they could get some support among people. Those two main parties, uh, one of them is called Yabloka, can be translated as apple. Again, uh, don't trust your eyes when you see something is written uh, in, in Russian. It doesn't have anything to do with apple, but just uh, uh, an, an abbreviation of the, uh, of the three names of the founders of, of the party. Yvelinsky, Boldrif, Lukin, Yabloka. And the other one is the Union of Rightist Forces, uh, SPS, an abbreviation in, in Russian. So, in single-mandate districts, those two parties were able to bring seven deputies to the Duma, seven out of 225. And your guess, your expectation would be, okay, at least they have seven pro-Western, pro-American, pro-liberal, pro-reformist deputies in the state Duma, and it will be kind of a nucleus around that nucleus, and that nucleus will be producing great ideas, and it will be very actively involved uh, in the legislative process. You know, the first thing that five out of those seven deputies did, five out of seven, they dumped the voters, they switched the side, they joined pro-Putin faction, the largest faction in the state Duma. So that's just my suggestion. That's what I will exactly do when I'm back in, in Moscow, when I will see people from the National Democratic Institute, who have their office in Moscow, and International Republican Institute, who also have uh, their office in Moscow. Those two programs used to invest millions and millions of dollars into those two political parties. And I literally mean millions. Uh, uh, nobody can tell you precisely how much money of American taxpayers uh, has been spent on those two parties in the last few years. But we have exact information from General Accounting Office regarding uh, 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 1992-1997 period, when those two main American programs, through the Agency of International Development, were providing organizational and technical support to those two main pro-liberal parties in Russia. The amount of that support was $17.4 million. So, you know, that's a little bit frustrating when um, you single out somebody who, in your opinion, can be your best man in Russia, your best party in Russia. You start investing your best hopes, even though those parties don't have much support in the society at all. You start investing not only best hopes, but also millions of dollars. And when the Russian voters turn their backs on the uh, pro-American, pro-Western, pro-liberal, pro-reformist parties in uh, the country, you are getting very upset, and you uh, uh, characterize that kind of election as not fair. In fact, you know, there is only one party uh, in the country oh, that indeed has a reason to say that the elections were free but not fair. And that party is the Communist Party of the Russian Federation, because that was the party which got the biggest percentage of negative campaigning on TV, that was the party which was subject to an absolutely uncivilized, to an absolutely uncivilized pressure from the government. Uh, that's what we call in Russia, черный PR, black PR, uh, black public representation. 
when, for instance, uh, you could hear just outrageous lies on Russian TV about the Communist Party of Russia, including, for instance, that was my favorite accusation of the Communist Party, that they were conspiring with Chechen terrorists to blow up apartment buildings in Moscow. Or how would you like, for instance, this trick, dirty trick, when you have a monument uh, at statue of Lenin, but instead of the head of Lenin at that monument, you will get a head of Gennady Dugas, the head of the Communist Party of Russia. And that monument would be erected in front of the building where Gennady Duganov was born in Arlovsky Oblast, and you would say that, you know, actually that's not the government that, that did it, not the local administration, but that the, the Communist Party members, they consider Gennady Duganov a kind of a god, a semi-god. Uh, well, that they consider Gennady Duganov to be a Lenin with, with Duganov's head now. And of course, well, other, other things. Uh, as a result of that absolutely unprecedented uh, pressure, only once before, I can tell you, it was not uh, uh, absolutely unprecedented, only once before uh, the Communist Party of Russia was the subject to all these terrible uh, lies. And that was in 1996 when Yeltsin was running for re-election uh, uh, as, as president. It's only twice in the whole history of the Communist Party you could see the kind of things that are done by the government against one particular party. We have four main TV channels in Russia. And of course, TV has an incredible impact on, on voters in America, just like in, 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 in any other country of the world. And you know, out of those four main TV channels, three tried to put the Communist Party of Russia on ice. The fourth of them was uh, uh, more objective, and it covered all campaigns in the, of all parliamentary parties in, in Russia, uh, more or less adequately. Uh, analysts from uh, one of the most uh, respected Russian newspapers, Gazeta, the independent uh, newspaper that I like indeed, and it's a liberal newspaper. That's it. Uh, you cannot accuse people from that uh, uh, newspaper to be communist sympathizers. But they counted, for instance, that a month before the elections, the Communist Party of Russia was mentioned or was covered, or their campaign was covered by three main TV channels 48 times. 47 of them was negative campaigning. One, it was positive piece of information only because it was represented by a, a candidate of the Communist Party itself. So, if, the, oh, if American and European observers they say, uh, they mean when they claim that the communist, that the, uh, the results of the elections were not fair just because they are thinking so highly about the Communist Party and they regret that the Communist Party did not bring more uh, members to the State Duma. I have very big doubts and, and uh, that, that's, that's indeed the case. Um, we have one very interesting piece of legislation uh, here in the United States of America uh, that uh, I wonder if uh, any of you know about that, or many of you know about that. That piece of legislation, that act, is called Russian Democracy Act. Just let me, let me uh, once again tell you that that's an American act, an act which was adopted by the U.S. Congress and signed it into effect by President Bush. It's called Russian Democracy Act. For those of you who are lawyers, or for those of you who deal with some legal aspects of foreign studies, 
Uh, the first question that you may ask yourself is, listen, what about those principles of extraterritoriality and principles of national sovereignty? One country cannot adopt a, a, an act like this about, uh, about some other country, Russian Democracy Act. Imagine that we would adopt an act in Russia called American Democracy Act. And imagine that, and I will just paraphrase what we would have in that Russian act and what you have in American act. Imagine that we would write down in the head that Russian lawmakers and Russian policymakers and Russian people in general are extremely interested in having a democratically elected president and democratically elected uh, legislators uh, in, in the United States of America on federal level as well as on, in, in state. Uh, well, that's exactly what American people also need. The question here and the problem here is that our understanding of who is a true Democrat and your understanding of who is a true Democrat might be quite different. Your understanding of who is a true Democrat in Russia uh, would probably... No, it's... How do I need to... Hello? Hello? Yeah. Okay. Uh, imagine that um, we would designate as our understanding of who is a true Democrat Michael Moore who is a very interesting character, a very interesting figure. Uh, I always like, I, I always watch his awful truth and bowling for Columbine. But, you know, that's quite clear, even for a foreigner. Something is going on here. Yeah? Okay. Um, even for a foreigner, that he is, uh, maybe I should do it without the microphone. Yeah? yeah? This microphone has been acting badly the last couple of days, so let's just turn it <laughs> so that's exactly what the U.S. government, State Department, uh, U.S. Agency for International Development, uh, and uh, those programs in Moscow, which are funded by the U.S. Agency for International Development, that's exactly what they do in my country. They find out, they designate somebody who is as radical as Michael Moore in American politics, and they start supporting that person with his party, uh, they start providing that person and his party with millions of dollars of American taxpayers, believing that that's exactly the person who can, who can be a true Democrat in Russia, and that, that's exactly the person who can represent and defend American interests in Russia bet, better than anybody else. Uh, imagine that we would do the same, not with Michael Moore, of course, but with Denis Kucinich, right, who is the leftist uh, uh, out of all... Uh, leftist oriented out of all democratic candidates at this moment. Uh, and uh, we would start, we cannot, of course, provide him with money. That's against law, just like it's against law in Russia. You cannot just uh, put uh, a Russian party uh, or some party leader on, on a payroll uh, in, in Washington, D.C., but, you know, there are a lot of loopholes in American legislation, just like in Russian legislation, how you can actually support your favorite person. You can start training his staff. You can start training um, uh, people in the regions of Russia who are campaigning on behalf of your favorite person. You can start inviting uh, the leaders of that party to the United States of America, or we would start inviting Denis Kucinich and Michael Moore, to Russia, and we will be paying that. We will be doing it on a monthly basis, maybe more often. We would be paying uh, him just for a speech for a presentation between fifteen thousand and seventy thousand dollars. Not seventeen, seventy thousand dollars. So 
you know, and everybody would uh, be uh, arguing, everybody from, from the party of those leaders would be saying that, well, just an honorarium. That the American audience wants to hear what, uh, what that person uh, wants to say. We have a reason to believe that that's a way how you actually bypass the ex existing Russian legislation and provide your favorite man in Russia with, indeed, uh, astronomical, by Russian standards, sums of money. Um, in March, just in a couple of, couple of weeks, there will be a very interesting, I hope interesting, movie on HBO called Spinning Boris. Boris is Boris Yeltsin. The movie about 1996 presidential campaign when uh, the um, uh, 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 organizers of Yeltsin's campaign decided to bring American consultants to learn from them how to elect a leader who at that moment had per, uh, uh, support of 6% of the Russian population. Of course, in that movie, and you could see Jeff Goldblum uh, at David Letterman's show just three, three nights ago, uh, the point in that movie would be that we Americans actually re-elected Yeltsin uh, in, in Russia. That's, that's not the case. Uh, but nevertheless, it's just a very interesting illustration of how foreign influence and foreign money can play quite active role in Russian politics. I have an excerpt from a very interesting study, which was done by Sarah Mendelssohn. She was working for National Democratic Institute in Moscow uh, in those years, uh, in the mid-90s. And now, as far as I remember, she's at Tufts University. She has just published very interesting research uh, under auspices of Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. It's called Western Assistance and the Development of Parties and Elections in Russia. If anybody is interested, please send me an email message, and I will send you a link to that website at the Carnegie where you can download the whole text. That's exactly what she said. The U.S. Embassy was expecting pro-Yeltsin falsifications in the 1996 presidential election and warned the Moscow USAID mission, that's exactly her word, warned, to keep a distance from monitoring efforts that might actually uncover fraud. The point here is if you have a pro-Western, pro-American leader, uh, authoritarian or semi-authoritarian, just like Yeltsin was, then that's fine as long as he falsifies elections, as long as he keeps his country on a pro-Western track. Once you get somebody who is not as pro-American, pro-Western as Yeltsin, and Putin is definitely not, not um, a pro-Western, pro-American leader, he is pro-Russian leader, that's exactly what you expect from your leader, then something is probably wrong with that person. And not just with that person, but with the voters, if they turn their back on our best parties in Russia. Um, quite often, you can hear criticism of the results of presidential uh, of parliamentary elections in Russia uh, 2003, or of the uh, situation in the country overall. Some of that criticism, of course, is deserved. Each country deserves, and each government deser deserves uh, a substantial amount of criticism, not only Russian. But some other criticism is not deserved at all. And let me give you an example when some criticism is coming from a really high official in the United States of America, in this case, it's Colin Powell. You remember he visited Russia just a couple of weeks ago. And in the, one of the main Russian newspapers, which is called the Zestia, he published a really critical article uh, about the state of democracy in Russia. Among other things, he says that, and that's another quotation, Russia's democratic system seems not yet to have found the essential balance 
among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. Essential balance among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government. An absolutely correct statement. But you know what's the problem with that statement? That's how our constitution is written. You don't have checks and balances in the Russian constitution. I have been criticizing annual reports of the U.S. State Department on human rights. You know, they publish with annual reports covering uh, most of countries in the world, and they have a, 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 a big section in that report dedicated to Russia. But check out what that, those reports, annual reports, were saying about Russia when Yeltsin was in power. Separation of powers, with checks and balances. No, we did not have checks and balances in, in Russia at that moment, too. Uh, it's a super-presidential constitution, super-presidential republic, when most of powers are in the hands of the president. That constitution was adopted not under Putin. That constitution was adopted under Yeltsin. Why didn't we hear that criticism from the U.S. State Department about lack of essential balance among the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of government when your best man was in power in Russia? Why do we start hearing that absolutely correct criticism only when Putin is in power? Something is definitely wrong here. Uh, and that's what I call double standards. Uh, to make my point clearer, let me just quote how the Russian constitution was characterized in the United States of America when Yeltsin was in power. The constitution of the Russian Federation uh, of 1993 created a true federation all basic civil rights exist in Russia, not only in theory, as they did in the past, but in practice, as is true in Western democracies. And finally, the constitution of the Russian Federation creates a genuine Western democracy. So it was not a big deal for, for those who wrote this definition of the Russian constitution. And actually, if you read the Russian constitution, uh, you, would, uh, uh, you would ask yourself, uh, what constitution this guy is writing about? That's definitely not the Russian constitution, which is terrible. The constitution, which was adopted in 1983 under Yeltsin, which was written exclusively for Yeltsin. Super-presidential, semi-authoritarian constitution. So why uh, did American observers change their view on that constitution and on separation of powers, or rather lack of separation of powers and checks and balances, when not Yeltsin is in power, but Putin? That's a question that you can ask yourself. Um, you know, coming back to that act of uh, Russian Democracy Act of 2002, that was the first time when in a, a piece of American legislation you can hear the same words free but not fair as far as parliamentary elections or other elections in Russia were concerned. Uh, in the final version of the act, Russian Democracy Act, only two elections were defined as free and fair. Elections of 1995 and 1999. Those were the elections when pro-Western, pro-American, pro-Yeltsin, pro-reformist parties got a substantial number of votes. But the question that you can ask yourself, what was wrong with other elections? Why they were not recognized by the same act, Russian Democracy Act, as free uh, and, and fair? And you know what is also interesting? That's just because I'm, I'm a lawyer and uh, I used to deal with, with legislation in, in, in Russia as well as in America. When you study an act, a new law, you should also try to get early drafts of that act, not just the final version which was adopted and signed into effect. Try to get early versions of the same bill. 
And you will see that how some certain provisions were changed and certain new things were added. You can see what's there on the minds of the American policymakers and lawmakers in the House of Representatives and in the Senate, uh, as well as in the Russian Parliament, when they make those changes and additions. Uh, I studied six uh, versions of that act, five early bills, uh, five early versions of the bill, and the final version of the act. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting, early versions of that act spoke not just about two parliamentary elections of 1995-1999 as free and fair in Russia. They also mentioned presidential election of 1996. That was the version which was introduced by Tom Lantos, Democrat from, from California, and that was the version of the act when it was adopted by, it was passed by the House of Representatives. When the, that bill came to the Senate, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee struck down the second part of that, uh, you know, uh, uh, number of, of elections that were considered or can be considered to be free and fair. So the U.S. Senate decided not to mention Russian uh, presidential election of 1986. That's when Yeltsin was re-elected. That's when uh, the uh, U.S. Uh, uh, embassy warned uh, the programs of U.S. Uh, aid in Moscow to stay away from, from those elections because it looks like they will be falsified, so just try to stay away, not to notice that they were falsified. And it was a big pleasure for me, personally, to see that the U.S. Senate at long last decided not to mention presidential uh, election of 1996 as free and fair because they, could be, they were anything but not fair. They were indeed falsified with support of American programs and with the support of American consultants. At long last, the U.S. Senate became embarrassed to mention those shameful re-election of Yeltsin of 1986 as fair, and that's a pleasure indeed. Um, but what was wrong with, the, with other parliamentary elections? And please raise your hand, those who study Russia. Uh, when, I, when I give so many different dates, of the elections. I hope that I don't confuse too many of you. Uh, the, the first election of 1990, the first free, absolutely free uh, election to the first Russian uh, parliament. Uh, at the time it was called, known as Congress of People's Deputies and a lower, straight, uh, lower tier of that uh, parliament was known as Supreme Soviet. There were observers from the U.S. Federal Election Commission in Moscow as well as in other locations in, uh, in, in Russia. Uh, there were observers from Lawyers Committee for Human Rights, now that organization, you know, it's a New York-based uh, human rights organization. Now it's known as Human Rights First. They had their observers in Russia, and they called those elections the freest ever held in history of Russia. And that was absolutely true. That was really so. That was uh, the election that brought the biggest number of reformers including Yeltsin. Yeltsin got 80% of votes in his district. He was elected as Russian deputy. Immediately he was elected as the speaker of the Russian parliament. And, uh, well, uh, main changes in the economy and in social sphere were initiated when he was uh, uh, elected as the head of the Russian parliament. Next year, 1991, he was elected as the first Russian president. I want you to remember that Gorbachev never was a Russian president. He was the USSR president. 
the first president in Russia whom we had, and Russia was one of 15 republics in the Soviet Union. The first president of Russia was Yeltsin. So those elections of 1990, when the first democratically elected parliament was elected, those elections and their results were hailed in the West, just like in Russia, as the freest and the fairest in, in history of Russia. Until that moment, when President Yeltsin decided to dissolve that very parliament. Do you remember 1993, when the parliament was burned down? That was that very parliament, which was considered by, which was described by, not only by Russian observers, but American as well, as the parliament which was elected as a result of the first ever held elections in Russia. And do you remember how that parliament was described in the days of confrontation between Yeltsin, who was definitely your best man in Russia, and the parliament? The parliament was described as, so forget about those democratic elections, forget that 80% of people uh, in the district of Yeltsin voted for him, forget that the largest percentage of deputies were Democrats, uh, I borrowed this book uh, of, uh, uh, when, I, when I saw it in the office of, of Jerry Hudson, uh, my, my friend and, and colleague. Uh, it's called Russia at the Polls, Voters, Elections and Democratization. Uh, among other things, this book, that's what it says about the uh, parliamentary elections of 1990. Elections to the parliament which was burned down by Yeltsin in 1993. Members of the intelligentsia won 56% of the seats in the Russian uh, uh, Congress of People's Deputies. Deputies represented diverse political positions, etc., etc. Indeed, that was, in my opinion, the freest ever elected parliament in Russia. Um, and that's what you heard in American mass media until that moment when Yeltsin decided to dissolve that parliament. That was a constitutional coup. Uh, the, the president could not dissolve the parliament. Uh, just like imagine that in the days of uh, impeachment of President, um, uh, President Nixon, he would decide to bring tanks and burn down the, that, those buildings on Capitol Hill. Or imagine that President Clinton would do the same in, 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 instead of invading Yugoslavia, he would just burn down uh, <laughs> buildings uh, on, on Capitol Hill uh, who were considering his affair. But that's what Yeltsin did. And how was he characterized? He had a 17-minute conversation with uh, Clinton. Uh, that's from the book of memoirs of Strop Talbot. And after those 17 minutes of conversation with Clinton, when Yeltsin informed him that he is dissolving the Russian parliament and he needs Clinton's support, Clinton supported him fully, F-U-L-L-Y. And that's an exact quotation. And uh, Clinton called it consolidation of Russian democratization process. So, you know, when you bring tanks and you burn down the parliament, and uh, officially dozens of people uh, were killed, uh, most probably oh, we should count in hundreds rather than dozens because the exact number will never be known. So when a foreign leader says that's not a civil war in the center of Moscow, that's uh, consolidation of democracy. You can understand that this word democracy is becoming, do you call this democracy? Then we will not vote for that democracy. And do you remember how that parliament, that very parliament, was called American mass media? I was at Harvard at that time. I could see it in the New York Times and the Boston Globe. A nationalist communist bloc, a nationalist crypto-Soviet opposition, 
a band of communist apparatchiks, a band of communists and fascists, and finally communist fascists, not communists and fascists, but communist fascists, masquerading as parliamentarians. Okay, fine. Um, but that's, that's their parliament. That's not some different parliament. That was the parliament which, ele which elected Yeltsin as its speaker before Yeltsin was elected as the president in 1991. What happened with that parliament? Why did American mass media uh, covered the same parliament in, in absolutely different terms? You know, when I was at NYU, I was teaching there in 2000 um, uh, at the law school there. And that was spring 2000. Uh, that was the end of the second term of President Clinton. And uh, Strop Talbot dropped by. Uh, it was clear that it's the end of the second term of, uh, of President Clinton's administration and that Strop Talbot and other members of the administration, they needed to find a place where they will be able to land after the end of the uh, work in, in, uh, for, for President Clinton. So he was looking for uh, a nice place. He finally went to Yale and then to Brookings, but NYU was on his mind. And uh, there was a, uh, a dinner with him and with some other faculty members, and um, uh, uh, the dean of the law school, who is now the president of, of NYU, John Sexton, introduced me to Strop Talbot. And you know Strop Talbot, he's a specialist in Russia, he's the one who smuggled memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev to the West and published them here, even though we tend to believe that the memoirs of Nikita Khrushchev were not written by Khrushchev but by his son. But that's a different story. Uh, and he speaks Russian, and when John Sexton introduced me to him uh, as the first Russian visiting law professor in history of NYU Law School, of course Talbot immediately switched to Russian, and he was very friendly. Uh, until that moment, uh, he wanted to know more about me and my background. Uh, until that moment when I told him that, you know, I worked in the Russian parliament, in that very Russian parliament in 1990, 1993, uh, uh, first as a senior specialist uh, on the staff of Foreign Relations Committee and then as a chief specialist. And if you believe that there were only communists and fascists in the Russian parliament, well, I am not a parliamentarian, but I am definitely one of them, because I worked for, for those people. You know, his face turned stone cold immediately. Uh, he said, I never said that there were fascists in the Russian parliament. He turned away, and that was the end of the conversation. Okay, fine. Uh, the first thing that I did when I got the Russia Hand, a book of memoirs of Strop Talbot, I wrote two big reviews of that article uh, for Russian magazines. But the first thing that I did, what does he say about that uh, Russian parliament where I worked and the parliament which was described as, uh, once again, communist, fascist, masquerading, parliamentarian? Well, I've never been a member of the Communist Party. Then if you are not a member of the Communist Party, if you, if you are not a communist, then you are fascist by, by this definition. So, by the way, congratulations, guys. Now you know who is your, your speaker today. <laughs> Frankly, I don't think that I'm a fascist either, but, <laughs> but that's, what you, that's uh, the, uh, an opinion that you would get after reading the New York Times and the Boston Globe in those days. So the first thing that I checked out, what does he say about the Russian parliament, which was dissolved and burned down by President Yeltsin in 1983? That's right. He does not say that there were fascists in the Russian parliament. But how does he describe it? A red-brown coalition. What's, what's the difference, right? 
Red means communist brown. Who are brown? The same fascists. Okay, that's not true, but that's just one of those indications. Of course, everybody is speaking now about WMD, not weapons of mass destruction, but weapons of mass deception, uh, as another major failure, failure of American mass media and American policymakers. I spoke uh, at Wittenberg University last year, and uh, uh, Jerry Hudson and Jerry Pankhurst were present at, at that, at that, uh, at, um, during those speeches that I made at, at Wittenberg, and that was in April 2003. Well, that was the time when uh, the question regarding Iraq, where in Iraq was so hotly debated in, in America, right? So basically, American mass media is saying now what I said a year ago. Do you have weapons of mass destruction there? Do you have any proof that there are weapons of mass destruction there? Is there any justification for that war besides oil and strategic interests? Um, that's another case when, you know, when American mass media lies so openly about your country, how can you be so sure that they given you the correct picture when they describe the situation in Iraq or in, in other places of the world? That's, you know, after 30 visits to America, that's one of the conclusions that, and one of the questions that I ask myself. Um, to, to have more time for questions and answers, let me finish this brief presentation with the words of somebody whose 100 years were celebrated in Princeton just last week. And that person is George Cannon. That's one of those cases when you consider somebody an extremely important, influential, distinguished specialist in foreign policy, and we in Russia have the same views about the same person. Quite often, you know, we disagree with the American audience uh, about the legacy of certain American leaders or certain American policymakers. For instance, um, I think that the attitude in America to President Nixon is not absolutely fair. In terms of foreign policy, we in Russia, for instance, consider him to be a great policymaker because he opened the Soviet Union. Remember his visit to the Soviet Union in 1972? He opened China. He was not the one who began the war in Vietnam, right? Uh, maybe he was a crook, but that's just a domestic problem. <laughs> for us in Russia, uh, he is indeed one of the most significant foreign policy leaders in the United States of America. We don't try to impose our views on American audience, but you need to know that in certain cases we disagree with you. As far as Canon is concerned, that's indeed uh, one of the most prolific uh, writers and strategists, strategists uh, in the history of um, American foreign policy of the 20th century. And when I give you this quotation, I am absolutely sincere, and I'm really delighted that somebody said that, the problem, of course, with those words that I will be quoting now is that those words were written in April 1951. And what are the words that I would like to use uh, as the end of my brief presentation today? The most important influence that the United States can bring to bear upon internal developments in Russia will continue to be the influence of example, the influence of what it is, and not only what it is to others, but what it is to itself. Of one thing we may be sure, no great and enduring change in the spirit and practice of government in Russia will ever come about primarily through foreign inspiration or advice, 
to be genuine, to be enduring, such a change would have to flow from the initiatives and efforts of the Russians themselves. I think that um, so far it has been the, vo the voice in the wilderness. The results of the Russian parliamentary elections should be respected by foreign audience and by foreign observers and by foreign states. They were representative. Uh, the elections in March this year, in two weeks, will probably have the same result. Putin will win by absolute, by slant, uh, in a uh, landslide, not because of falsifications of the elections, but just because it's an enormous backlash after Yeltsin's years. We're tired of those who call themselves Democrats, Russian Democrats, Russian liberals. That's, you know, it's a pendulum. It's moving in the opposite direction. If you make your country stronger, and Putin does make his country stronger, if economy is working better than it was under Yeltsin, and it is working better, we have 7% uh, growth of GDP this year, last year. Uh, you know, those Russian liberals who were voted down in elections now, they say that, yeah, this is growth, but this is not development. Maybe that's true, but we didn't have even that growth under you when you were in power. So at least we have this growth of, of GDP. Uh, so at, most probably he will win in the first uh, uh, round of elections. Um, to, once again, to make my point clear, I, he's not my president. I did not vote for Putin in 2000, just like I didn't vote for Yeltsin when Yeltsin was elected in 1991 or in 1986. My candidate comes second, according to opinion polls. He will get between 4 and 8 percent. Well, but he is my candidate. <laughs> so, um, uh, I would not like to, to portray myself as a pro-Putin propagandist. I'm very critical of many things that Putin does. And when he deserves criticism, he should be criticized. But not for those things when he does not deserve that criticism, especially from the American audience and from American mass media. So that's exactly the point that I want to make, that if we seek to be genuine, to be enduring, uh, such a change in Russian government would have to flow from the initiatives and efforts of the Russians themselves. The U.S. government, the state administration, uh, the State Department, the U.S. Embassy, American programs in Moscow should respect the outcome of parliamentary and presidential election in Russia drastically reconsider priorities of their work in, in Russia. And at long last, to hear the voice of President, uh, of, of Judge Cannon, that if we want some enduring, stable uh, change in Russian uh, government, it will come only from Russian themselves. Thank you very much. And